another episode of Nerd Talk, the interview series for Stanford University's weekly neuroscience seminar brought to you by Neurit West. I'm Aiden Yee, a neuroscience graduate student here at Stanford. Today our guest is Lisa Monteja, professor of neuroscience at UT Southwestern. In this episode, we will talk about a mouse model of autism, investigating depression by studying a clinically effective antidepressant, and how working in industry can inform a life in academia. All this and more coming up. We're here with Lisa Monteja, professor of neuroscience at UT Southwestern. Thank you for speaking with us today. Oh, I'm happy to be here. Usually we like to start the interview by talking a bit about your background. So we were wondering where you grew up and also if you're interested in science as a kid. So I grew up in the Midwest. I actually grew up in Illinois, a small town on a farm. All the typical stereotypes come with being in a small town in the Midwest on a farm. I liked science. I don't think I would have necessarily thought I would have been doing science per se, just because I, I, again, I liked it, but there wasn't a strong scientific environment. We didn't live close to a university, so I really was unfamiliar with a lot of research and things along those lines. But I was really good in math, and I was really good in science, so I kept taking more and more classes, and the more I took by the time I went away to college, I actually was sure I wanted to be a scientist. Did you know that you were interested in biology or neuroscience at that point, or were you just very much science in general? More biology, more biology. I really wasn't sure what my focus was going to be. And in fact, my initial focus was microbiology. And I was in a lab and the PI ended up shutting down his lab rather quickly because he accepted a dean position somewhere else. And so as a graduate student, I ended up leaving and actually going into industry for a few years. And in industry, I actually hired within a neuroscience group to do molecular biology. And that was my first exposure to neuroscience. To be honest, they hired me as a molecular biologist in a neuroscience group, and I never had a eukaryotic cell biology class. So the first thing I did was actually book on eukaryotes to understand the difference between bacteria and how things work in different systems. Wow. Wait, so this was before you had completed your PhD? Yes, yes. Mm-hmm. Huh. And then you concurrently finished the PhD while working in industry? Yeah, What happened was I was working in industry and I had told them about a year and a half in that I was getting ready to apply to graduate schools because the goal was always to go back and do a PhD. And I had been very fortunate in industry to have a lot of things actually work and a number of patent applications that had been submitted. And so they uh, were very kind in wanting to keep me. And I told them that it really became I wanted to do a PhD. And so in the end, they actually came up with a compromise where I could finish off my PhD at a school within the Chicago area while I maintained working in industry. What are the major differences you found between the approach in academia and industry and what made you really set on completing the PhD? I knew that even in industry, it was going to be crucial to have a PhD. And so I was very clear on what my goal was, was in getting a PhD. I think coming from Industry training and academic training together has really been a wonderful experience because you really see how the different aspect, these different aspects of science work. So I think the one thing about industry, what I learned was to be incredibly organized on top of things, all the meetings, being responsible, having your stuff in nice presentations on a moment's notice. Um, I think I learned a lot of very valuable lessons there and I worked with a number of really great people. And in academics, I really learned how to delve further into question, think much more mechanistic, and how do you really take it to the next level? Because in industry, you know, 
things can change very, very quickly. I was on a project on cognitive enhancement. So it was uh, a drug designed for Alzheimer's disease, and the drug failed in phase two clinical trials. And it failed. There had been a second failure on a Parkinson's drug just a couple months prior. Very quickly, the neuroscience research group that I was in became neurological and urological disease. And I literally went one Friday on hearing about cognitive enhancement to the following week being on an incontinence project. <laughs> wow. You're hearing how much an animal is urinating is sort of a big change from cognitive enhancement. But things move. They move very quickly. You're trained. You should be able to switch directions. And that's yeah. it. You do where whatever the priorities are necessary for the project you've been assigned. Uh-huh. And, and that flexibility has served you well in, in uh, academia, you think? I think so. I think it's made me, I think especially starting out, I had very clear ideas of what I wanted to do. And I don't think that the necessary hesitations a lot of times that come in when you start a lab and I really want to set this up or that up, but can I do it? I don't think I had a lot of those hesitations per se because I felt like, okay, I've already done a lot. I've been moved around a lot. I think this is an important direction. Let's just go for it. Let's just move forward. So I think in that sense, it's been a really powerful and um, important lesson that I learned along the way that's benefited me as an academic scientist. And you mentioned that um, you kind of went back for the PhD because you knew that that was what was needed to to move up in industry. But you actually ended up, you know, definitely like as you mentioned, and we'll get into this in a bit, setting up your own lab. So why did you decide that you actually wanted to stay in academia? So I wasn't sure. I had I finished my PhD in while I was working for industry. I did it in a neuroscience lab um, in academics, but still it was sort of a joint venture at both times. Uh-huh. So from that, I uh, went and did a postdoc with Eric Nessler. And the reason why I picked Eric's lab was because I'm more of a molecular biologist by training. And for all the molecular biology, animals we could make, genes we could manipulate, I didn't really have a practical output for neuroscience to test what was going. So his lab, I thought, was a good fit in learning how to do behavior and having sort of an output for what we were doing. So that was actually a very important aspect. And I really just adored Eric from the moment I met him. I liked him. I liked his science. I liked the people in the group. I just thought it was a wonderful training environment. That's awesome. So I went to his lab with the goal of actually going back into industry. And I was very fortunate as a postdoc to get a number of different fellowships and travel awards and things along those lines. I think part of it was because my background was a little bit outside of the ordinary. And I think that that comes through in terms of how we write grants, how the questions that we're proposing might be framed a little bit differently just because of my previous experience. And so with all of that, um, as it went on, I was talking to Eric Moore, my graduate advisor, different people. And I just decided that, yes, academics, you know, this was not necessarily where I thought I would end up when I went into my postdoc. But by the time I was finishing my postdoc, I decided that, yes, I wanted to stay in academics. So after finishing your postdoc and then being back in industry for a while, you set up your own lab at UT Southwestern, where you still are today. There's kind of two major areas that we've noticed in the lab, very hot topics in neuropsychiatric disease, depression and autism. So maybe let's start with some of your research on autism. So you study uh, the gene MECP2, which is a well-known regulator of uh, epigenetic and uh, DNA folding so that it controls its expression. 
and how misregulation of this gene can actually result in Rett syndrome, which is a specific autistic condition that uh, generally affects girls, but I guess can sometimes, in some cases, and maybe we'll get into this, can affect males. And so loss of this gene results in Rett syndrome, but also duplication can result in the same disease. You guys published a paper where you looked at this overexpression of MECP2, found some interesting deficits. And so can you just start out by telling us what, why did you feel the need to, to do this overexpression study? So the overexpression of MECP2 doesn't cause Rett syndrome per se. I see. It causes a disorder that's called MECP2 duplication syndrome. Uh-huh. And it's been attributed to the fact of where the duplication occurs, it involves the MECP2 gene. And so phenotypically, there is some overlap between MECP2 that causes the sort of loss of function causing Rett syndrome and then the duplication. We were interested uh-huh. in it. Um, it. It's sort of an interesting question. Too little of it and you have a neurodevelopmental disease and too much of the protein and you have a neurodevelopmental disease. But it's a transcriptional factor. And transcription factors are usually very, very tightly controlled. And so we were interested in it. Um, We published quite a bit on loss of MECB2 function and the impact on behavior, on synaptic transmission, uh, brain regions and neurocircuitry that may be involved in mediating some of the phenotypes. And we were interested in the duplication just to really see what would happen. There had been previous work using a different overexpression mouse line that had found some rather surprising phenotypes. So it was to really go in the MECB2 duplication syndrome that we were trying to really look at. We used an MECB2 overexpression line that was actually generated by Rudy Yanish and his group. So we didn't generate those lines. But we took those mice and we characterized them in a wide array of behaviors. And we could find that we could actually recapitulate some of the phenotypes that are seen. And interestingly, the phenotypes that we could recapitulate, a lot of them were behavior. But when we looked at the synaptic transmission alterations that occurred, what we saw was that loss of MECP2 impacted very specific aspects of synaptic transmission. Overexpression of MECP2 impacted those same parameters, but in an opposite manner. So for example, loss of MECP2 causes loss causes a decrease in miniature EPSC frequency, where overexpression causes an increase in miniature EPSC frequency. So there were a number of parallels that were happening, suggesting that MECP2, even though it's, you know, there's some question if it's just more of a global transcription factor, is producing very specific effects. And those effects, like I said, are sort of a bimodal type effect, whether it's loss or overexpression, which I think is actually quite interesting. So some of the behavior was similar to the uh, loss of function, even though the, the synaptic phenotype was opposite. Do you think what, what is the steps in between that, you know, converts this like opposite synaptic effect into the similar behavior effect? So that's something looking at. So, for example, patients that have Rett syndrome typically have a low IQ. Patients that have MECP2 duplication syndrome also have a low IQ. What we find is that loss of MECP2 produces very specific behavioral deficits in certain types of learning and memory paradigms, just like overexpression does. It's not that every single learning and memory paradigm is impacted. It depends on the type of learning and memory is what we've shown. And really, I think as the field is moving forward, you know, it's necessary to do just more than one test. It's not sufficient to say, you know, fear conditioning 24 hours after training is learning and memory and that's it. 
they're all behaviors that are, you know, having deficits, but they're actually over, uh, not overlapping necessarily in which features of those behaviors have been changed. Yeah, I mean, not necessarily. But at the same point, it's hard to really say with an animal, I guess there's certain aspects to learning a memory, but to know what that's really modeling in a human. So that's also an issue that we have. There's always that sort of little bit of caution, if you will, to how do you really go about and make sure you don't overinterpret your data. What is yeah. it that you are actually studying? What is the phenotype? Because we're not claiming that what we're seeing is autism per se. We're trying mm-hmm. to actually study aspects of Rett syndrome or MECPG duplication syndrome. Um, I think in terms of the synaptic phenotypes and how they're mediating the behavior, that's a really interesting question, and that's something we're looking at. Our data is suggesting right now that MECB2, at least in terms of the synaptic deficits that we're studying, appears to be mediating specific impacts on presynaptic neurotransmission. And we can actually see specific presynaptic genes that are upregulated following the loss of MECP2, and we see some of those downregulated with overexpression. The problem is we see several of those genes, not just one, so it's difficult to just go in and manipulate one and recapitulate the full phenotype, which I think makes sense because, again, it's a transcription factor. So we're trying to understand that at multiple levels because I think these are really important and dynamic questions. So if you have increase of expression of presynaptic genes in loss of MECP2 and fewer EPSCs, then... Do you think those genes are negatively regulating synaptic transmission? Are those, is that a working hypothesis? We're, we're trying to understand it. So our data so far suggests that loss of MECP2 appears to be impacting probability of neurotransmitter release and vesicle recycling. So our thought okay. is, is that what may happen is that MECP2 may be, because MECP2 is in the nucleus, even though it's produced okay. these synaptic deficits, that it might be through dysregulation of specific presynaptic proteins that therefore are mediating the synaptic deficits. And what's interesting, I think, about this is that, again, it's found in the nucleus. And there's a number of these rare mutants that, mutations that are linked to autism, and most of those synaptic proteins. And there is some similarities in the phenotypes that are observed with MECP2 alterations and these synaptic proteins. So therefore, you know, our thought is even though MECP2 is not at the synapse per se, it's through dysregulation of presynaptic proteins that may be triggering some of the same phenotypes that you see and might explain some of the overlap in synaptic functions that you see with these autism models. And are these presynaptic proteins more synaptic vesicle-associated proteins or active zone organizing proteins? It depends. We've seen a number of genes dysregulated. So we have seen some genes involved in vesicle recycling. We've also seen some genes at the active synapse. One of the caveats we have is that there's a number of splice variants for most of the presynaptic proteins. So even if we haven't seen certain ones dysregulated, we can't fully rule it out. We can go in and in the MECP2 knockouts, if we overexpress certain genes, we can recapitulate some of the phenotype, but not fully. But the problem is we see a number of genes dysregulated and we really don't have the ability to overexpress multiple proteins at the same time in neurons. Very interesting. Well, we'll continue to follow that line of work. Now, moving on to the depression side of the lab, you have a paper in 2011 in Nature where you elucidate the mechanisms of a really important phenomenon found in people with major depression. That is that severely depressed individuals taking low doses of ketamine have a very immediate reduction in depressive symptoms. 
and this is important as most antidepressants like SSRIs work over a much longer time scale. And specifically, uh, translating this to mice, you found that ketamine and other similar drugs, which are short-acting NMDA antagonists, elicit antidepressant effects in mice that are much quicker-acting than the SSRIs and also are much longer-lasting than the acute effect of just blocking the NMDA receptors themselves. So what did you find about the molecular mechanism for this effect? first of all. So sort of backing up just a little bit, because there are a number of points that you raised. So we were interested in the question of really how does ketamine exert this effect? Because it's really sort of surprising in the field. If you look at the antidepressant research over the last several decades, it's really focused in on monoamine. The drugs in some way are manipulating monoamine levels, and they take several weeks to exert an antidepressant effect. And what happened was, in an inpatient unit, low-dose ketamine, extremely, extremely low doses, were infused over a 30-minute period to patients that hadn't responded to prior antidepressants. So they were sort of treatment-resistant, if you will. And this infusion resulted in a rapid antidepressant effect within 30 minutes that was persistent in some patients for several weeks out. And I mean, these patients, a lot of them are just inpatient unit in rather a state of nothing's going to work, some of them suicidal. It was a really, it's a really tough patient population. The, the field is very desperate for treatment advance. And the patients weren't responding because they were hallucinating, because ketamine at very high doses can be an anesthetic. At mid-level doses, it can trigger sort of schizophrenia-like effects. It's used to model sort of schizophrenia, NMDA receptor antagonists are in animals, um, but also NMDA receptor antagonists, certain ones can trigger sort of a schizophrenia-like effect in patients. It appeared to be a true antidepressant effect. Now, some patients might, while the infusion goes on, feel a little odd, but it appears, again, to be an antidepressant effect. So we were kind of very intrigued by the fact that you could block NMDA receptors and have this rapid antidepressant effect. It makes sense, in a sense, if you wanted to get a rapid behavioral effect that you would manipulate either glutamate or GABA, but how would you actually block an NMDA receptor, a drug that has a half-life of two to three hours, and have a behavioral effect for weeks later? It's clearly not persistent blockade of NMDA receptors. There has to be something else going on, nearly like a plasticity-mediated effect. And so in the study, what we did is we did a lot of preclinical work just with animal models and behavior to show that ketamine could actually exert an antidepressant effect in animals robustly. And it sounds like sort of a trivial experiment since ketamine works in patients. But the reality of it is drug companies, as they're looking for new antidepressants, use certain paradigms because those paradigms were actually predictive of antidepressants that will work in humans. And so therefore, drug companies use these types of tests to screen for antidepressants. But, it's, but every FDA-approved antidepressant works through monoamines. So it's never been clear that if you actually have a mechanism other than monoamines, would you even work in these paradigms? And so we went in and we could show that very, very low dose, we did a dose response curve, very low doses of ketamine could trigger a rapid antidepressant effect in most, not all these paradigms, but most of them, without the confounds of hyperactivity or learning and memory deficits that you get at higher doses. And that was our starting point. So with that, then we ask, is it blockade of NMDA receptors that triggers the effect? And the answer appeared to be yes. So okay, it's blockade of NMDA receptors, what's next? And in previous work, we had shown, for reasons we're still trying to understand, that deleting BDNF, a brain-derived neurotrophic factor, results in loss of efficacy to antidepressants in animals. And it appears to be mediated in the hippocampus. It doesn't appear to be due to neurogenesis per se. We think it's due to an effect of BDNF on synaptic plasticity. So we simply asked, does ketamine produce an antidepressant effect in these BDNF conditional knockouts? 
And the answer was no, it didn't, suggesting beach was required. And that really was our starting point. Okay, you block NMDA receptors, BDNF is required. We also showed TRAF-B was required, the high affinity receptor for BDNF. So what happens? And it really became a very interesting set of experiments because um, what we showed was that BDNF protein was actually rapidly upregulated within 30 minutes. And BDNF was required for the effect. And it built on previous research that had shown that if you infuse BDNF into the hippocampus and midbrain, while you can have a rapid antidepressant effect, the antidepressant effect could persist up to like six days later, long after the protein is degraded. You can think about BDNF having effects on plasticity. So that part makes sense. But how do you go from blocking NMDA receptors again to then increasing this BDNF protein synthesis? And it wasn't just BDNF. There were, other dendritic, pro- there were dendritic proteins that we saw upregulated as well. And there's many ways you can think about NMDA receptors, increases in protein translation, and plasticity-mediated effects on LTP. The problem is is that this blocks NMDA receptors, and that became the quandary. How do you explain it? So what we're proposing is that the low dose of ketamine seems to be crucial for this, is that you actually can impact spontaneous NMDA receptors, and with that, you selectively inhibit a particular kinase, EEF2 kinase which can also be called CAM kinase 3. And when you inhibit it, what's interesting about this kinase is it only phosphorylates one protein. It's one substrate that is known to have EEF2. And when you inhibit the phosphorylation event, what happens is you can desuppress protein translation very quickly. So it gave us a potential mechanism that's been shown in vitro. And we went on to show that it appears that this mechanism is in play in vivo. And in fact, if we just inhibit the kinase independent of blocking NMDA receptors, we can trigger a rapid antidepressant response that persists for more than a week. And so we went on then to really try, and my talk's going to talk about those initial studies, as well as our follow-up of showing that this BDNF appear, requirement appears to be involved in triggering an insertion of GLUR1 and GLUR2 and actually mediating a potentiation. And so it's sort of surprising blocking NMDA receptors triggers a potentiation. And so I'm going to talk about that as well and why we think that that's why we think that's occurring. And so we're actually spending quite a bit of time trying to understand this potentiation. And what is this? Is this a sort of homeostatic type mechanism? And with it, since we have behavioral measures, do we have a way to try and perhaps understand homeostatic plasticity in vivo without drastic insults? So first, starting at the behavioral level of some of the findings you described, so you mentioned that this effect worked on some of the behaviors, but not all the depressive behaviors. Can you classify them according to symptoms of what we might call depression in humans as to anxiety, learned helplessness? I don't think we can really say that. And the reason why I don't is because we don't really know exactly what we're modeling, per se. So we can get ketamine at low doses, for example, to work in forced swim test and um, learned helplessness and novelty suppressed feeding. We couldn't work, for example, in social defeat. That's the paradigm that the only doses that we can get ketamine to trigger an antidepressant effect in social defeat are at higher doses, around 10 mg per kg in an animal, which at that point, you have hyperactivity and learning and memory deficits. So you have confounds clearly to the antidepressant-like behavior. And in fact, a recent paper came out this fall showing that in terms of ketamine and social defeat, in their hands, it was higher doses as well that were not really antidepressant effect. I think the thing is, is not all these tests measure the same thing. But the question is really, what are we mentioning? I think what you're touching on is actually, though, a very important question. So our data has really focused on antidepressant efficacy. How do you mediate a rapid antidepressant effect? 
And so by default, because we put forward a specific mechanism of specific intracellular signaling cascade, that if we manipulate, we can impact rapid antidepressant responses. Probably the most uh, common question I get is, so does it mean that that signaling pathway is actually gone awry in depression? And to that, we have absolutely no data on. And I don't know, I have no data on it, and I don't really have a feel one way or another if it impacts in any way depression. And I don't think it really per se matters, because what we're looking at is an antidepressant response. And I don't necessarily think that an antidepressant response is per se fixing deficits that are caused by depression. There's probably many, many different ways that you can get depression. And when you think about all the different types of depression, I think what's interesting with ketamine was up until ketamine, people were really focused on monoamines to trigger an antidepressant response. And now data suggests that you can get an antidepressant response through blocking NMDA receptors. There's also been some clinical data that scopolamine which is a muscarinic acetylcholine receptor antagonist, can also trigger a rapid antidepressant response, not as fast as ketamine, but still within a couple of days, which is faster than traditional antidepressants. And in fact, there's data from a couple of decades ago on muscarinic acetylcholine receptor antagonists as antidepressants, but that line of research was really sort of dropped because of potential side effects. So now it appears there might be more than one way to generate an antidepressant response. We don't know if there's a point of convergence or not. I think it's an important line of research just because of the clinical utility per se, regardless of if it tells us anything about depression. Just because a system gets broken in a certain way, this system that when broken we call depression doesn't mean you have to fix it in the same way it was broken if we get this effect by targeting some molecular mechanism and then, you know, it gets an individual back to a place where they can start engaging with the world in a way that's more healthy, that this is a success for translational research. Absolutely. Absolutely. And again, part of that just comes from this very, you know, and it's just an idea, but part of it just comes from a very simple idea that depression, again, is not one disease. So there's probably many different ways that you can get depression. Do I think that ketamine in treatment-resistant depressed patients, but it's also been used in bipolar patients, some patients that were suicidal. I mean, these are most of these are very small clinical trials. Do I think ketamine is fixing all these different effects in these different patients? No. I think that there's probably many different ways, like I said, that you can get depression. And there's probably, you know, the data suggests there's more than one way to generate an antidepressant response. So maybe in some way we're sort of overriding a certain system to generate the antidepressant response, even Mm -hmm. though underlying you still have depression. What happens is when you get the low dose of ketamine, you get this rapid antidepressant effect that persists for some time. But it's not long lasting per se in the sense that you're going to have relief for months or years. When you go off of it, you still have depression. So you have to, one of the areas of research that's going on, like what we're trying to study basically, but clinically, which is very important, is if you can mediate this rapid antidepressant response, how can you maintain it? What else can you do? Because these patients are getting some relief, but you don't want them to go back then to the level that they were before. Right. So all of this, I think, very much touches on kind of the larger approach to treating not only depression, but any kind of neuropsychiatric disorder, which you actually wrote about. There was a recent Nature News and Views um, in which you kind of had a debate with two of Stanford's own, Robert Malenka and Carl Dizerasa, who were interested in to, to see what your 
take is on all of these things. So in that piece, you actually suggested this kind of reverse translational approach, which is, I think, illustrated by that nature paper you had and all of this discussion we're having in which you kind of look not, you know, starting from the bottom up, like at, at you know, the, the, the circuits and try to figure out all the circuits before designing targeted approaches, but instead you take the approach that you did and with your knowledge of what is working in the clinic, you know, kind of figure out what are the mechanisms underlying those things that are already working in the clinic, um, hopefully I'm describing this correctly, and then from there you can design approaches that you know might, might have a better likelihood of working. Can you explain what you call this reverse translational approach to us and, and why you think um, it, it has advantages? So to be really honest, myself and then Carl and Rob uh, wrote the other pieces and our pieces were really not that different. I think they were us to be more different than what we were and we were kind of coming in with you know, sort of the bottleneck at the end is always going to be the behavioral approaches that we use in the act. My view was, and I think it comes back to this idea of understanding the neural circuitry. I think those are really important experiments. Don't get me wrong. I think those are important experiments. But I think understanding antidepressant efficacy is a separate question. We don't necessarily have to fix alterations in neural circuitry per se to mediate an antidepressant response. And that's something that, you know, is clearly areas of research, which are important that we're trying to understand. But my general feeling is you may or you may not, but still understanding an antidepressant effect, I think is important. I think that the field has sort of been burnt a little bit in the sense that with typical antidepressants, you take them for weeks on end to generate an antidepressant effect in patients. So in animals, that's what you do. You get the antidepressant for weeks on end, and then you look at the effect. And if you look in the literature, there are thousands and thousands of papers, and there's so many documented changes that people observe. And is that a surprise when you've taken a drug, a psychotropic drug, for weeks on end that there should be a multitude of effects? It's very difficult to make that causative. So I think the field has sort of moved in a different direction of, okay, just studying how drugs work doesn't really advance us. It hasn't advanced us in how many years. And I think clearly work trying to elucidate the neural circuitry is very exciting and very timely. My view is that though now that we have things like ketamine that can produce this fast effect within 20 to 30 minutes, a single dose, scopolamine can produce a rapid effect, you know, within a couple of days. You have a way, you have a time course now to go back and try to ask questions and try to get more mechanistic than I think we've been able to do in the past. So that's really, I think, what the crux of the argument is. I think both these lines of research are important. I don't think they're mutually exclusive. But in terms of does the neural circuitry necessarily tell us what we need to fix, it might. But how do you go about doing that in terms of a drug? And so I think this line of work of trying to understand what these drugs do, especially these rapid ones, where you can think about mechanism, might provide some overlap down the line. Ada and I were talking earlier just about some of yeah. the benefits and you know, and demerits of, of both approaches. And I mean, either way, you have to cross this human-mouse divide in, in the biochemistry, and a lot of drugs fail w going from one side of the divide to the other. And then also in modeling the behavior, though it seems that the specific molecular mechanisms of, of pathways in eukaryotic cells are well-conserved, as are a lot of the circuits. And so it seems like, as you were saying, these are complementary approaches because we actually saw merits of your approach in discovering drugs on a shorter time scale because you start with pathways that you know are druggable and that are important for getting at least an antidepressant response. And then the other approach can maybe be more served in the long term of discovering new circuits and, and designing yeah, drugs against Yeah, I guess, do, do you see one or the other approach as being more uh, rapid in terms of clinical, finding clinical efficacy, you know, yeah. efficacy? I, I think they're both important. I think it's sort of my advocate view of which 
was what nature wanted in this news and views was why should you study ketamine? Why should you study drugs? And as I said, I think that because the rapid nature, it allows you to think of mechanism it moves the field forward in a way we haven't been able to do before. But the second part of this, and it kind of comes into, you mentioned this term reverse translation before. And I think that's a really important concept because to be honest, if I would stand up on a stage and show all of our data that we have currently without the clinical data on ketamine, but show it, I would probably be locked off the stage. Like, okay, ketamine is producing antidepressant effect in animals. Really? What does that mean? Because there's many things that can change behavior in a four swim test per se, especially if you're only using one test. And in our studies, we've used multiple tests, but still people argue how good are these tests? What are they modeling? We all agree that it would be wonderful to have better animal models but this is where the field is right now we're all trying to make the best use of the animal models that are there so my view is that i'm not sitting here telling you that ketamine produces this rapid antidepressant response and has a potential clinically to really change depression per se but you know there's side effects with ketamine so we need to think about mechanisms so that we can perhaps have a fast-acting antidepressant without side effects i'm not saying those things the clinical research is saying those things there's clinical data Academy produces an antidepressant effect. So now the question is why? Usually what we do is we try to put forward some hypothesis in terms of, okay, what kind of drug do we need to design? This class of drugs can rescue this type of plasticity or behavior. So this might be a promising drug, and a lot of those fail clinically. This is a drug that's working clinically, so the question is how? So it's sort of a reverse translational type approach where I feel like we're on solid footing in terms of the rationale for why we're doing the experiments and trying to understand the mechanism. So finally, we just was, were wondering if you could give us a quick preview of your upcoming talk as a way to keep us in suspense until you come <laughs> to Stanford and speak. I'm actually very excited about my talk. Stanford is such a beautiful campus, so I'm excited to come and present our work. And like I said, we're going to focus on antidepressant efficacy, this ketamine-mediated effect, as well as where we're going with it and what we're trying to really um, deal with it in terms of understanding mechanism. Okay. So it's really going to encompass the plasticity and the behavior of this potentiation that I mentioned and intracellular signaling. So a number of different things that are sort of, I think, going to hopefully intersect in an interesting way for the audience. We're almost done here. We usually like to end the interview with a few rapid, what we call rapid fire questions. So we're just going to ask three very brief questions and you can answer with three very brief answers that are whatever's on the top of your mind. Okay. (laughs) Okay. So David, do you want to take the first one? Sure. What advice would you give to your graduate student self? So this is specifically you talking to yourself as a graduate student. It's all about perseverance. It's just don't give up perseverance and just keep moving forward. Okay. Good advice. Good advice. Um, All right. So using the same time machine that we used in question one, if you could have dinner with a historical scientist, neuroscientist or not, uh, who would you choose and what would you talk about? I would probably, because of our focus has been on psychiatry, I would probably pick Freud for probably all the obvious reasons that you can think of. (laughs) Um, So many of his ideas were controversial, perplexing, and Years later, we're still discussing them and trying to really understand it. So I would probably pick him, which I realize is probably a very popular answer. Can you imagine what you would discuss at dinner? Yeah, Um, that would be very I I would like to attend that dinner. (laughs) We still use a lot of his uh, terminology today. All right, so that's a great answer. All right. And then finally, if life took a different turn and you were not a scientist, what career do you think you would have? Probably a teacher. I really like teaching. 
and I find it exciting. So I know that's not a huge step, but probably that, even though my lab keeps telling me this is really sad. Um, there's been comments made about I would be a great stylist. <laughs> I like I pay attention to detail. So I guess that would be it where I'm like, oh, you got your hair cut. Oh, I like, you know, so that's more I think, my personality of small town back a large Italian family and everyone hugs and kisses and (laughs) notices everything about you in two seconds. Those are both very fun answers. Yeah, that sounds like a wonderful thing. All right. Well, great. Thank you so much for speaking with us again. Okay. Take care. Thank you. Thank you all for listening. We hope you'll join us next week when our guest will be Matthew Dalva, Associate Professor of Neuroscience at Thomas Jefferson University. Neurotalk is a production of Neurite West. This episode was produced by David Lipton, Andrew Gundren, Viet Nguyen, Eddie Alberin, and myself, Ada Yi. Adam Fuchel and Kyle Riley compose and perform our theme song. You can find all of the past episodes of Neurotalk as well as our radio show, Brains and Bourbon, and read articles about everything you ever wanted to know about neuroscience by visiting our website at www.neuritewest.org, spelled N-E-U-W-R-I-T-E-West.org. This is Neurotalk. I'm Amy Yee.